1: Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your
2: podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, millions of households experience food insecurity. And that includes during the holidays. Well, we'll hear about a new mobile food pantry that will deliver meals to Cobb County families. Plus, an analysis of Georgia's new congressional map. And with Atlanta's runoff election just a week away, we'll look at the latest polls for the mayoral race. All those conversations coming up in just a moment. But as you heard on NPR and what we know, today was the second day of closing arguments in the Brunswick trial of three men accused of murdering Ahmaud Aubrey. Prosecutor Linda Donikowski gave the state's final rebuttal. Remember, this isn't about having personal baggage back in the jury room. It's not about a point of view or an agenda or anything like that. That's not what's going on. You all are really, really smart, and you've paid really, really close attention to this case. You're going to determine what really happened based on the evidence, and then you're going to apply the law that the judge gives you to that evidence. It's not about being an advocate for anybody. It's your search for the truth. I suggest, once again, that you work from the bottom of the indictment. It's just going to be easier. Criminal attempt at false imprisonment, and then work your way through it. It'll help you logically. Then Judge Timothy Wamsley gave the jury the final instructions regarding the charges against the defendants. Now, here's Judge Wamsley, in part, explaining a felony murder charge.
0: You may find a defendant guilty of felony murder if you believe that he caused the death of another person by committing one of the felonies just described, regardless of whether he intended the death to occur. There must be some causal connection between the felony and the death. Felony murder is not established simply because the death occurred at the same time as or shortly after the felony was attempted or committed. The felony must have directly caused the death or played a substantial and necessary part in causing the death regardless of when the death ultimately occurred.
2: And a programming note, if the jury indeed reaches a verdict today, WABE will have live coverage. In other news, the new federal infrastructure bill will bring nearly $14 billion into Georgia. Now, that's good news to agencies like the Atlanta Regional Commission because they're starting to plan. The commission's Doug Hooker says the extra money is a boost to some metro Atlanta transportation projects
1: already in the works. We'll be able to accelerate some of those plans. Some key projects such as premium transit for Clayton County residents, expanding the streetcar in Atlanta, uh, and also to uh, provide greater uh, transit services in critical quarters like Greenbrier Parkway, Campbellton Road,
2: Hooker says there's also funding to make streets safer for bikes and pedestrians. He went on to say as the Atlanta region continues to grow, its transit infrastructure needs, well, they need to keep up. And also the wind and low humidity brought by yesterday's cold front have led Georgia forecasters to issue a fire danger statement. The National Weather Service warns today is a bad time to burn anything outdoors because of the dry weather. The notice about fire danger conditions applies to parts of north and central Georgia, including Fulton and DeKalb counties. And the low humidity and winds of 5 to 10 miles per hour are likely to continue into tomorrow. And temperatures are expected to reach near freezing tonight. This is Closer Look.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture.
2: Closer Look continues. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. According to Feeding America, more than 1.2 million people are facing hunger in the state of Georgia. And of that number, more than 370,000 are children. And that means at least one in eight adults and one in seven children here in this state experience hunger. And it's not just statewide, but we know globally the pandemic has been a primary factor in the global increase of hunger. There was a report issued earlier this year from five United Nations agencies that revealed global hunger increased in 2020 with 2.3 billion people lacking, quote, year round access to adequate food. Now here locally up in Cobb County, well, there's a Cobb County based nonprofit that's trying to help as many folks as possible and especially during this holiday season. I'm joined now by Dr. Dwight Ike Rygaard. He's a president and CEO of of Must Must Ministries, and he joins me now. Can I call you Ike?
0: Oh, please do. (laughs) It sure works a lot better than Riker Rose. So (laughs) absolutely.
2: Thank you so much for taking the time and happy holidays to you.
0: Uh, Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. It's my favorite time of the year, but you know, Rose, for a lot of people, it just exacerbates what they're going through.
2: Absolutely. And I want to start with those numbers I just mentioned because I'm sure they're not lost on you, not just here in Georgia, obviously not just nationwide, but globally. So millions of, billions of people experience whether it's food insecurity, hunger, poverty, you know, and people say, well, why does this happen? And I know that's not an answer that you can It's you can, not a question you can answer that will, will satisfy anybody. But when you think about so much of this that's taking place in our world, you know, what goes to your mind?
0: Well, the first thing that I think about is how much the face of poverty has changed. Even in the 10 years since I've been at MUS Ministries, we now see the majority of the people that we serve at MUS are women and children. And suburban poverty is your fastest growing segment Mm -hmm. of poverty. A lot of people want to think uh, issues with poverty are things that are only in urban areas, but they're certainly in the suburban areas as well. And we see it in our schools. There's estimated between Cobb County Schools, Marietta City Schools, that there's between 22 and 2,400 students who would be considered homeless.
2: You know, you mentioned the face of poverty, and we've done a lot of segments on this program as it relates to, you know, people's perceptions of exactly who's out there. And it and it, it crosses all demographics, it, you know, from age to, to gender to race to ethnicity, all of that. And households where there can be two working parents, you know, depending on, you know, where, where folks are living, depending on what other expenses they have, I mean, food Insecurity, and then also, Ike access, which is what we talked about coming into the segment, access to adequate food, is so is such a problem for many households.
0: Well, it really is. And, you know, Rose, I served on a task force for the Cobb-Douglas Health Board. And one of the things we did was a heat map of this area. And there are literally food deserts that are out there, especially in the southern part of Cobb County. And so when transportation is an issue, then even getting to a grocery store, Mm -hmm. you know, Either you're having to get an Uber to drive you there and you're having to pay for that and pay for it to come home, along with the food cost. And as you said, the vast, vast majority of the people that we work with at Must Ministries are what would be classified as working poor. (laughs) Uh, They do have a job. It's just, if you tried to make a a living and take care of your family on minimum wage, it's impossible in the world that we're living in today. And so Must Ministries is there to be able to be a safety net for people. I tell people all the time, if you want a mental picture of what we do, think of people on a high wire. And if they're falling off, we're the safety net. We're not a hammock, but we're a safety net to catch people, get them back on their feet.
2: Those folks, as you describe in terms of of, of catching and helping, but I imagine the last 21 months, Ike, because of the pandemic, the, the, the need... The need for resources, whether it's from your organization and many other organizations, has been extremely high, probably to, to percentages you all have an experience in your time being with Must
0: Ministries. Uh, you're absolutely correct, Rose. We, um, In a normal year, Must would have served 33,000 unique individuals mm-hmm. in a normal year in 2019. But during the pandemic, we ended up serving over 220,000 people, so about six times our our normal rate. Now, some of those people were duplicated, whereas Mm -hmm. 33,000 were unduplicated. And the reason for that is because there were so many people with so many needs having to come back uh, that we got to the point where we weren't trying to keep up with the paperwork. We were just trying to keep up with the need and taking care of those people. Um, It's continuing today. Uh, In 2019, we would give away on a normal day about 1.1 tons of food and right now it's running 3.3 tons of food a day and thank God for people like the Atlanta Community Food Bank who have been a fabulous partner to us and then food drives that are done Because it's a constant, and especially when you get right around the holidays, people get really anxious about being able to provide for their family and be a part of uh, all the holiday expressions that we want to be a part of. And that Thanksgiving meal has always been a centerpiece for most families.
2: Well, let me ask you, let's just shift for a moment. How did you all make it through that? Were you all able to receive some extra funding to to buy? Because you all have to purchase the food, you have partners but y'all have to purchase
0: some of this food too folks should know not just you but so many organizations exactly and and when the supply chain was interrupted it made it even more difficult mm-hmm. so we had teams of people scouring everybody from Costco to Publix to Kroger's to you name it uh that were trying to be able to find the food then to be able to get out to our clients and so uh it was certainly an impactful time for us but you know Rose when you go through a critical time uh, you you see sometimes the worst in people but you also see the best in people mm-hmm. and so the outpouring of generosity to help us make sure that we were taking care of families was there because normally we have food pantries in schools 34 physical locations mm-hmm. that we have but it serves over 100 schools and we take care of about 600 families a month through that one particular program.
2: You know, Ike, I've said that before, and, and I don't feel that I'm, you know, crossing the line as a journalist by saying this. And then we've been, a lot of us have been covering, obviously, the pandemic. But to see the organizations, not just in Cobb County, here in the Atlanta area, DeKalb, Clayton County, to see these public and private partnerships step up and help so many folks in need. I mean, this pandemic really, I mean, we know about the health implications, But I talked to people, had folks email me and call me looking for assistance. Um, The level that the philanthropic community and maybe they could do more. I'm just putting a little pressure on Um, (laughs) y'all. But the level that folks stepped up to help individuals and households was just it was it was wonderful to watch. And this is what we should do. Right. I mean, people say, "Okay, there she goes. But that's just how I feel, you know.
0: Well, I I agree with you. I I think when we reach out and we look after one another, you know, Rose, my heart for this comes because I grew up in downtown Atlanta on Marietta Street, Mm. and I lived right across the street from what was called Inman Yards, the big railway station. And the homeless people when I was a child were called hobos, and they were almost predominantly male. Uh, when I was a kid and and remember meeting them. And my mother would always feed those uh, folks that found themselves in a situation like that. And our neighbors would get upset with her and they would say, you're gonna get hurt or you're gonna get someone else hurt. And my mother would always say, well, you know what? I know that's somebody's son. It could be somebody's dad. It may be somebody's brother. And I have all three. And I would wish to God she would say that if one of mine was in trouble, somebody would be willing to take care of them. So that's the kind of raisin that I had there. You and
2: me both. I had the same raisin.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it was a good raisin.
2: Let's talk about this mobile food pantry. How did all this come about?
0: Oh, we're so excited about that. You know, earlier I I heard a, a spot on the program there about Giving Tuesday. And uh, that's what happened for us. It was on a Giving Tuesday that we put out the idea to the public about creating a mobile pantry. And that's because so many of our clients are transportation challenged and they, they have issues being able to get to us. So every facility that must has is on a bus line, number one. Mm-hmm. But in Cobb County, that bus service is, is spotty uh, at times. And so we wanted to find a way where we could go to people we already do that with our summer lunch feeding program. And this year, we did 535,000 summer lunches uh, mm. for children, uh, you know, over um, eight county areas is what we were working in this year. And so this mobile pantry gives us the opportunity to go to apartment complexes, to, uh, to be able to go to recreation centers, churches and communities, uh, different places where people can come and gather nearby to their Homes where we can provide them food. And one of the best things about it is it has fresh fruits and vegetables and those things that families want so much. So we're just thrilled to be able to do this. We estimate that in our first year, we're going to touch over 16,000 individuals with Mm -hmm. just that program alone. So I'm hoping we're going to get a fleet of buses, uh, you know, to be able to go out and to be able to do this because. Um, it's just the right thing to feed people and to think, you know, that, that a child uh, is without. And recently, Rose, we opened up a pantry at Green Acres Elementary School mm-hmm. uh, off South Cobb Drive. And the principal's name is Ashley Mize. And right as we were getting ready to cut the ribbon, she began to cry and um, she kind of composed herself. And she said, I, I'm sorry that, that I started crying. She said, but a few weeks ago, I had a little girl come up to me in the hallway. And she said, Ms. Mize, can you get me something to eat? I'm really hungry. And she said, I said to the little girl, well, honey, did you not get to eat anything for breakfast this morning? And she said, no, I didn't. And last night, I didn't have any dinner. And Ms. Mize said, well, why didn't you have dinner last night? She said, because it wasn't my turn to eat. Hmm. I cannot imagine the horror.
2: There are so many households, as you know, and folks who are burdened with that and trying to make ends meet. You know, often folks always want to interject what they think is the reason. But at the end of the day, it's about making sure folks have access to food.
0: It is. And, you know, I'm a pastor by background, and so sometimes people will say to me, well, doesn't the Bible say that if you do not work that you shouldn't eat? And I always say, what about when somebody is working? What about when both people are working and they still can't afford to eat? And it's just a basic part of humanity that we should open up our hearts and our arms and our resources, our wealth. (laughs) to be able to help other people. I've never met a stingy person, Rose, that was happy. But every true giver that I've met, there's a happiness that exists there. And we're just there to help people through those tough times.
2: Well, and speaking of happy, I I bet you were happy because last year you all, I think it was last year, you all were awarded $5 million from Amazon's day one families so i bet you were happy that day
0: hey rose when i received the first email that just said you've been selected and if you want to participate it didn't say who it was and i thought it was one of those emails we all get about someone has died somewhere and left us you started you know, to hit delete oh i almost hit delete i i'm sure and the day that I got the letter and found out who it was, it just said, dear Dr. Riker, we're happy to award you and Must Ministries $5 million. And it was signed Jeff Bezos. If you would have told me my name would ever be mentioned in the same breath, I would have said, no, I don't think so. What are y'all going to so, do so with
2: that incredible. funding? What are y'all going to do with that funding, Ike?
0: Well, what we did was we took one and a half million rows. We're building a new shelter right now from the ground up. This is not going to be some repurposed industrial building or an old church like we have now. This is going to be 172 beds. Um, that's going to open in March. We should finish all the building program in January, the actual building of the building. And so we're, we're just absolutely thrilled. So one and a half million went toward that project. And then the other three and a half million we're using to do sustainable work to keep people from being homeless over the next uh, five years.
2: Wow. Um, That's going to help so, so, so many people. Again, when you expect the, the ribbon cutting on that?
0: it's going to be on march the 18th and also rose the um the mobile pantry that's now out rolling Mm -hmm. uh, man i got to give a shout out to kroger because they gave us a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar grant to run the program it's a part of their zero waste efforts Mm -hmm. that they are doing so that was just tremendous the the generosity of people just astounds me and it man it just makes my heart overflow people want to do good and must has been around for 50 years. And so we, we enjoy our role in the community.
2: And Ike, if someone is listening that may know of a household that indeed could benefit from the, what you all are offering for Thanksgiving or if someone's listening, how can they go about either signing up or learning how to, to receive you know, resources from you all?
0: You can go to musministries.org O-R-G, and uh, you can navigate on there, and there's ways to be able to take care of people. And also, Rose, we will start in a couple of weeks our toy shop. And last year, we served over 5,000 children through the toy shop. So um, the great thing there is we let the parents come in and do the shopping mm-hmm. because we're all about creating parity, not charity in the eyes and the hearts of those that we serve.
2: I have covered those type of events. I know Marta does it with their Santa shop. There's nothing like seeing a a parent or a caregiver pick out a bike, a really cool bike. The coolest thing is getting a bike for Christmas. I don't care what anybody says. That is the coolest thing to get. I know I've been there to get a bike for Christmas. You're wondering all through December and November, am I going to get a bike? You don't see it because it's hard to wrap a bike under a tree. And you're like, Dad, where's my bike? He's like, you're not getting a bike. I'm like, I'm not getting a bike. And then all of a sudden you come downstairs and there's my bike. And it was the color I wanted. I didn't want pink. I wanted blue and green. I <laughs> wanted like stripes and stuff on it. So my dad hooked me up. So I definitely know that that feeling. Ike, right, as we wrap up, okay. what is your well, message? So one day
0: Go I, I've got to come back on the show and tell you my Schwinn Tiger bicycle story <laughs> yeah. and uh, when we want that heartwarming moment where you see somebody really look like an idiot i will provide that you <laughs> rose of course i do that on a regular basis anyway
2: no i as we wrap up what is your message to folks uh about this time of year and just understanding the need that so many folks have in our
0: community well just not to lose hope um, don't think that you're invisible. There are people that care and uh, they care deeply. And we're just privileged at must to get to reach out. You know, our, our mission is to serve our neighbors in need. Sometimes our, our neighbors are four years old and sometimes our neighbors are 90 years old, mm-hmm. but we're there to serve and we're honored to do it, Rose. So, Don't lose hope during this season. There's people that really care.
2: All right. Dr. Dwight Ike reigard the president and CEO of Must Ministries. Thank you so much for what you're all doing in Cobb County and the community. So many folks in need. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing.
0: Honored. Thank you for highlighting us today. Happy Thanksgiving. Same here.
2: And closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Ro Scott. The news yesterday, Georgia Democratic Congresswoman Lucy McBath announcing she would now run in the 7th district after the redrawing of the 6th, which she currently represents, but is held by fellow Democrat R- R- Representative Carolyn Bardeau. Well, the newly redrawn 6th district now has a heavy Republican base after state lawmakers passed the new maps. Governor Brian Kemp still needs to add his signature to approve the maps. Meanwhile, in local politics, a new AJCWSB Atlanta mayoral poll is out, which means only one thing. There's lots to talk about. Let's bring in Atlanta-based political strategist and closer-look politics contributor and dog lover, all of a sudden, Fred Hicks.
1: Welcome back to the program. (laughs) Thank you, Rose. Glad to be here.
2: Let's begin with that big news from Democratic Congresswoman Lucy McBath. Your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. You know, uh, we saw this coming. Um, You know, there has been a lot of discussion all year. Who saw this Um, coming? Well, I think politicals, right? People who watch this sort of stuff all the time. Um, We knew that Georgia was going to have to do something with respect to uh, reapportionment, given how much the population has changed and how much is localized around the Atlanta metropolitan area. We knew that Republicans were going to try to find a way to uh, to pick up a seat since you didn't gain a seat by just by population, natural population growth. OK. And so the question was, was it going to be Carolla Bordeaux or Lucy McBath, who was going to be drawn out of their district or drawn into so a So you saw, yeah, a lot district.
2: of folks saw that coming. But did you see? Right. Uh, but you're also saying you saw McBath making an announcement that she'd run in Bordeaux's district. You saw that coming?
1: Yeah, so she loves serving in Congress for sure. And you do not have to live in the district when you decide to declare to run for office. So someone Mm -hmm. who lives in Valdosta could decide to run for the 6th or the 7th. So for for Congresswoman McBath, given that she she clearly indicated that she wanted to continue serving, it made a lot of sense in my mind. And I think I assumed that she would run.
2: Well, to someone listening, it says it made a lot of sense in her mind. But if you're Carolyn Bordeaux, are you a little ticked off?
1: Oh, I'm sure. I mean, Congresswoman Bordeaux is new. She's been sort of a middle of the road person and she lives in the district. So uh, I'm sure this is not something that she wanted to see happen. But I I would be surprised if she was surprised that this is actually happening.
2: What do you mean by she's a middle of the road person?
1: Well, so when you look at the way things have played out, particularly this year under the Biden administration, uh, Lucy McBath has been more aligned with uh, Speaker Pelosi and your really traditional strong Democratic positions, supporting the infrastructure bill in its original form and, and other priorities. Whereas Carolyn Bordeaux, had, was, she was part of a group of congresspersons who said, well, let's look at this. Let's slow this down. I'm not sure if I want to vote for it. And she hasn't always initially been aligned with say Speaker Pelosi and, and well, the but a lot of Democrats
2: been... haven't sounds like you're leaning a little toward McBath Mac- being more of the the choice here
1: the choice in what way
2: that that she should indeed run for this take this run for the seventh and that she's the better choice is that what you're saying well
1: no, no no I'm just saying I'm not surprised that this is happening um, because I think once, once Congresswoman Bordeaux made the decision to to not necessarily go along with uh, Speaker Pelosi, that that for someone like um, for someone like Lucy Mcbeth, Congresswoman Congresswoman uh that made the decision a little bit easier. Because um, you know, look, running for Congress is a really difficult venture. It's a very expensive venture um, because the rules are different when you run for a federal seat than when you run for a statewide seat. Sure. And so the big groups out of D.C. play have play heavily, whether you're talking about an Emily's List in Democratic politics, or you're talking about uh, Club for Growth and the, on the Republican side, and then you have all these multi-letter organizations, DCCC, and uh, other groups like that. And so when you look at look at the votes that people take in Congress and the positions that they stake out, you very easily can see that Congresswoman Macbeth would probably have the support of people, again, who are traditionally aligned with Speaker Pelosi, which means there's a lot of money there, and well, but they're going to want to keep that voice. Well, well, hold on for it. The Dems can't pick a,
2: a a candidate in this. They have to stay on the sideline, right? That wouldn't be fair.
1: Well, we're not saying the Dem the Dems. You make it sound like it's a big monolithic group. That's that has you know three king or queen makers sitting around. Okay, the you know, king or queen makers that gonna
2: that will determine where the money's gonna go.
1: Well, I mean, people do have a, have a vested interest in seeing, making sure that their interests are um, are represented. And so, again, when you when, when Congresswoman Bordeaux to, made the decision that she did, to to mm, to not necessarily again initially align with the President and Speaker Pelosi's vision around infrastructure and some of the other bills, and to to slow play to negotiate for different things, then I think that made a lot of donors in D.C. say, Hmm. If we have to choose, which we weren't sure at the time they would have to choose. But once it became clear when the, when the special session started, remember, they floated the maps before the session started. And so we knew that the sixth was going to be drawn into a more conservative way. Mm-hmm. So at that point, Congresswoman McBath had a decision to make. And I'm not privy to this, but I would assume that she started making phone calls to the major organizations and major donors to say, hey, if I were to if I were to run in the seventh, would you support me? And I read her decision to do that as uh, as affirmation that that people were going to support her. Hmm. You're not going to do that without having some support for it.
2: But is this a dilemma for the Democrats, for the for the Dems?
1: Partic- well, the real dilemma is that you're losing a seat in a state that's 51 that basically is 50 50 that Joe Biden, Raphael Warnock and well, John why not then, won. Well, now you have to make a decision. Do they
2: not need then to put more money into that and to help? Lucy McBath try to still win, or was it just because if one could argue okay, y'all well, just gave it then to the to the Republicans. Just gave it a sixth well, away. Uh,
1: I mean, you I think an argument could be made that the redistricting process gave it away. I mean, you have now in the sixth in the sixth district, you have uh all of Dawson County, right? Um, which is very conservative. You have quite a bit of Cherokee County, which is very conservative. You have a little bit of North Fulton, the more, more conservative parts of North Fulton. And you got to remember, initially, well, currently, the 6th District covers Cobb, uh, Fulton County, and it goes into DeKalb County. And Lucidney Bath, when she won, uh, initially, she lost Cobb, she lost Fulton. It was the four, plus 14,000 votes she received in DeKalb County that elevated her over Karen Handel. And so they took DeKalb the out of it, and they drew it up north Further north into into Dawson County and some Forsyth County, so the numbers are what they are. This is not a very winnable district as it's currently constructed uh, with the current voting patterns. So when that when it was redrawn, Congresswoman McBath had to make a difference. Now, decision. Now, mm-hmm. to me, to me, the more interesting point was uh, in question is why did the Republicans dis- the Republicans? Because this was not a decision that Democrats made. Why did Republicans decide to draw Lucy McBath out? instead of Carolyn Bordell. That's
2: a very good question, which folks have talked about. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're, you're a strategist. You're an analyst. Care to give some analysis on that?
1: <laughs> well, my, my assumption is just for the same reasons that Democratic uh, institutions would be lining up behind Carolyn Bordell. Um, Lucy McBath in the race against Karen Bordeaux is that, again, you know, uh, Lucy McBath is more, has been more of a traditional Democrat, aligned with Speaker Pelosi. Uh, Karen, Carolyn Bordeaux is playing more the middle, middle ground, not necessarily calling her a yellow or a blue dog, but she hasn't been as uh, aligned with the Democratic establishment. So I think that made her uh, perhaps more palpable to Republicans locally but more of an anathema to Democrats nationally. So you end up with this situation where these two are drawn together. Mm -hmm. Um, And and honestly, I I would not have been surprised if, let's say, the seventh were drawn in a way that it was more conservative and the sixth state Democrat, perhaps we'd be talking about Caroline Bordeaux uh, running against Lucy McBath. So the the fact is that these are two persons who love to serve and who've been working really hard in Congress to represent their constituents. And I think it would be foolish to think that either one of them would just say eh, i don't want to serve anymore now the other option well and this but, but the this option is, for uh, mcbath
2: the, the option for mcbath was not to say oh i just don't want to serve anymore the option was to stay and fight and try to win i mean i get what you're saying i'm just, just asking mean, it's, questions it's,
1: that's not a winnable it's not a winnable district for democrats as it's currently drawn constructed it's not i mean dawson county cherokee county um, are are two sort of, uh, not sort of, they are Republican strongholds. Sure. These are areas that are strongly supported the Stop the Steal movement. They're not just traditional Republicans. They are very conservative. They are Trump type supporters. And so it's just not, it's not a winnable district for probably for any Democrat of the, right now.
2: Of the 14 congressional districts, any other district that you're looking at that might go either way, either for the GOP or for the Dems?
1: Yeah, so the, uh Sanford Bishop congressional district is one that's interesting. That is um, district two, it, correct? That is district two. So it runs along um, Highway 85, basically. If you think about it, from Southwest Georgia, Sawiga, my, mm-hmm. my 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 neck of the woods, on up 85 up into just south of Atlanta, and goes over a little bit into Middle Georgia. It's sort of the agricultural vein for the for the state. And uh, Sanford Bishop has served there for for a number of years. He's had a couple of tough challenges, but he's survived them all. Um, the way it's constructed right now, it looks like the district is actually now a majority-majority, so meaning that African-American voters make up about 49 percent as opposed to 52 or 53 percent that we had 10 years ago in the district. Um, But all that being said, the way the voting patterns have worked, it looks like like Congressman Bishop would be able to hold on to that seat, but there's some doubt that another person, someone who doesn't have the strong local record um, and ties to the agricultural community that they can hold it. So that's that's something that Republicans probably won't be able to pick up now. But if Congressman Bishop decides to retire, that one that Republicans could pick up down the line. So that's the other one we're looking at. And besides that, all the other seats are fairly safe.
2: Uh, we, we, you know, you have to talk about when you just look at because she is a, for lack of better words, polarizing figure, and that is you know Representative Margie Taylor Green. Uh, are you seeing any type of decrease in terms of her support even with the way the lines so, were redrawn
1: so the way the lines were redrawn I and mean, it's, it's a little bit less conservative but i mean not in not in any way that's going to cause her any kind of heartburn, mm-hmm.
2: oh, heartburn.
1: You know, that's the thing you know the way is that a is that
2: a heartburn that's a demographer metric y'all use
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we call it the pepsi metric you know so uh shout out to the people at Peps- pepsi no i'm joking i'm, oh, I'm not on anyone's payroll it. at yeah, Pepsit, so please we're not don't do that i'll get an email Go don't off. start that
2: uh <laughs> all right well before we move into this latest ajc wsb mayoral poll let's just for a quick moment here heading into 2022 obviously in strategy if these maps hold up and as speaker rostin has said already he expects a a a court challenge here. But if they mm-hmm. hold up here, any other strategy that, that you think the Dems or the Republicans are going to need to change or modify as we look to 2022 in the next November?
1: Well, you know, on the court challenge point, I am curious if an argument could be made um, that Republicans drew out the black person in favor of the white person and if that couldn't be grounds to challenge the maps here because again Republicans have the option to draw Callum Bordeaux as opposed to Lucy McBath who's an African-American woman Um, but I'm not sure I'm not an attorney but I'm I'm curious to see if that's an angle that's going to be explored um, from the from the court angle but beyond that assuming that these maps hold up you know the redistricting process will continue in next session Mm -hmm. because and this is I think important for your listeners to understand is that right now we're just talking about the congressional maps and we looked a little bit at the state house, state senate, but next up will be the county commission, school board and city council districts. And that stuff will be taken on and and some of the state house seats might be taken on as well, uh, revisited in the upcoming January session. So this process is nowhere near um, over. And so when we look ahead to 2022, the idea that you're going to have to deal with a lot of, well, not deal with, but voters are going to get new cards, they're going to have to revisit who their state reps, state senators, Mm -hmm. and their local elected officials are, Uh, we might see some additional movement because if someone is drawn out or drawn together, um, you're going to see, you you can look at people looking at other seats to pursue, and this is in addition to the normal seats. I mean, you have, like, for example, State Senator Jen Jordan, Jordan who's running for attorney general, so... Mm -hmm. Uh, her mm-hmm. congress her state Senate seat will be up and so you might see people leave one position to run for that. So this is a domino effect. we talked about this last year um, with with elections looking ahead to 2020. Um, 2021 and 2022, and that's another conversation we we'll want to look at. That this is just the beginning of the dust-up When we talk about Caleb Bordeaux and uh, and Lucy Bath. you're going to see other people making decisions. N- perhaps they're not as newsworthy because it's not congressional, but you're going to see that at the local level big time next year. We're
2: going to see some other names that we some familiar names that might reenter the wanting to be reelected. Is that what you're saying? Are you you got some news you want to drop? I I've heard stuff, but nothing I feel confident going to air with.
1: (laughs) Well, I think it's going to be interesting. So if you have a current elected official, this is the way the thing works, right? So let's say you have a current elected official who decides to leave their post to run for the state Senate seat. Then that triggers a special election for that person's seat, which could then trigger other special elections. So... You know, this is just something you'll definitely want to keep an eye on. Um, I think that once this session is over today, and we get through the holidays, I expect uh, that we'll be back on air next week or the week after, talking Mm -hmm. about some major announcements that are taking place. Well, let's
0: Um, talk about and then you
1: still have and you still have the other statewide positions out there. So let's keep that in mind as well. That every statewide elected position is up next year: governor, Mm -hmm. uh, lieutenant governor, attorney general. Um, you know, Secretary of Labor, Secretary of State and all that, and you have some declared candidates but those fields really aren't settled because for Democrats, the top of the ticket is not yet settled.
2: That's where I was going in terms of announcements not made, and I think we've had this conversation before um, what the Stacey Abrams decision kind of like when LeBron was going to decide where he was going you know, to play basketball <laughs> the, the decision um, that decision, whenever she makes it whatever it's going to be, has a huge impact on 2022 here in Georgia for the downvote.
1: Absolutely, it does. Um, And as we said before, I didn't think that she needed, I don't think she needs to make this decision before January because she has the ability to raise the money. She has the ability to galvanize Democrats very quickly. Uh, But I do think that she has to make this decision at some point in January, especially if she's not going to run. Because who, other Democrats need the runway to raise the money that they need to run, right? Um, and they, and then you might see some additional shifting. So, mm-hmm. if for example, if she decides not to run, maybe someone who's running for another position, AG or labor, decides to run for governor, and mm-hmm. so you you can see a lot of movement if she decides not to do it. Um, and then it also raises the question of who. Of how does that impact the money that's going to flow into Georgia? Because let's not forget we still have Senator Warnock, and Georgia will have will have a big say in the national balance of power, like we did last year. So there'll still be a lot of money. There'll still be a lot of text messages and phone calls and door knocking and mail and mailboxes next year. But if Stacey Abrams is on the ballot, that that really changes it. The other interesting development is what started as a whisper mm-hmm. seems to be getting quite a bit louder now that former Senator David Perdue is going to challenge um, Brian Kemp, Governor Brian Kemp and the Republican primary. So, you know, two or three months ago, we thought that Governor Kemp would sail through or his only opposition would be someone like Vernon Jones, your favorite guest or something like that. But now with David Perdue having the support of Donald Trump and David Perdue was starting to talk more and more and criticize Governor Kemp, particularly around the uh, election last year and not stopping Still, air quotes. You, you can't can't see me. Sure. Um, you know now that so now you have before the discussion was oh is Stacey going to run now the question is is David going to run so you could end up having a just an absolute um, battle royale really and the and the Republicans on the Republican side that. You know, if I'm Stacey Abrams and I'm kind of on the fence, David Perdue gets in there. That means they're going to have to spend a lot of money. They're going to bloody each other up and we're going to have a lot of oh, opposition okay. we, we, research look, done. So maybe that entices me. to You moment.
2: have talked about what Stacey Abrams needs to do, giving her a timeline. But look, we still need an official announcement from former mm-hmm. Senator David Perdue. I
1: mean, right. Correct. We do need a Correct. Because right now it's just speculation, just talking, which is what you're doing. It is, it is. And, and there's speculation on both sides. So, you know, if, if Stacey Abrams does, does not run, you know, Michael Thurman, the, the cab CEO has made it very clear that he wants to run and he will run if she does not run. Um, you have to wonder if other people will as well. And then, like we said, you know, on the, on the Republican side, you know, that right now it's just talk. It's the talk is getting louder. Um, you know, the reports are, are out there that Senator Perdue is calling donors and, mm-hmm. and, uh, testing the waters for his ability to raise money and he's testing his messaging. We see that very openly right now. Sure. And so that, because that looks like it's very interesting, which does raise the question also for Vernon Jones, who his whole value proposition is he was going after the, the Trump base. Sure. If they were produced in there and Vernon Jones is already out there, but I mean, we, he loves to run for office. So I would imagine he would probably look at another seat. Uh, hey Vernon. Um, but that's something that you have to look at. So this, th- there's a lot over this holiday run once we get past the Atlanta mayor's race segue um of course that that will be decided well a lot a lot is gonna be decided
2: well let's talk about Atlanta's next mayor now we have this new AJC WSB Atlanta mayoral poll now Fred folks that listen to this program and listen to us and know how much I love to fuss at you and your folks about polling because y'all lately been getting it wrong but just your analysis <laughs> of this new AJC WS, WSB mayoral poll, which has Andre Dickens, current city councilman, uh, give what about five percentage points over uh, mm-hmm. current city council president Felicia Moore. Your take on that, sir?
1: Absolutely. Well, you know, I, and again, as always, I don't think the polling was wrong before. I think it was uh, there was a lot that happened. The after polling the last was poll. wrong before. What do you mean, it was early. It was premature. That doesn't But mean it, it was, was wrong. wrong.
2: It was wrong. Miss
1: Darden happened and the NAACP and all those other things happened. It still was White's wrong.
2: It was it wrong. Was early. I don't care if it was it early. Was... It was wrong. Wrong is wrong.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> if you steal my uh, well, we donut, you still stole that. a donut and it was wrong. <laughs> Doesn't matter when you did it. <laughs> it's wrong. But, okay.
1: That's in the past.
2: That's in the past. Let's move on to the future. What is your analysis
1: of this current poll? Well, it's actually interesting because if you look at the methodology of this poll, again, it was conducted by the AJC and UGA, Mm -hmm. and they actually did tweak the methodology from from the last time, Um, I think probably in response to criticisms that it was wrong. And so this poll, um, they looked at uh, 2017 voters and people who voted on November 2nd as opposed to whatever methodology they used before. So there was a change in the methodology, Mm -hmm. uh, which is significant. Um, Now, that being said, if the poll is correct, which I know you doubt polling, um, what, a few things jump out to the team. You know, Felicia Moore went into this runoff with an 18-point lead over counts over Andre Dickens, mm-hmm. and if this polling is right, that means that he's made up 23 points in 16, 17 days, which is pretty, pretty impressive, pretty significant. Um, the until when you look at the crosstabs, what really jumped out to me is that. Andrea Dickens is doing better with women than she is, and that she's only at about 23% with Black voters, which I, that, that that's that's pretty amazing, given that, you know, obviously she's an African-American and African-American woman. Now, a lot of people have asked my opinion on this in the last, you know, 24 hours or so, and how I really see it, assuming that the polling is correct, um, and they made a point of saying that with a margin of error, this is basically still a tie, that mm-hmm. Your know, Andre Dickens is running a great campaign, and that, uh, but that he is—he is where he is. Twenty percent of people are undecided. Twenty percent of un- Af- African American voters are undecided. Is well, Why does Felicia. it mean that
2: he's running a great campaign just because he's ahead?
1: Well, to gain twenty-three points in sixteen days is pretty amazing.
2: Okay, let me—I mean, let me, I don't want to
1: trigger Atlanta Falcon fans or whatever, but this—that's uh, a pretty significant m- bit of movement.
2: Let's let's back up for a moment because this was something that we talked about. During the last poll, although it was early, as you just said, and that is that undecided number that you and I right. love to talk, undecided percentages here.
1: Mm-hmm. So in the last poll, the undecided was about 41%. And so if you assume that, uh, you're looking at how where Felicia Moore and Andre Dickens were in that last poll and, and looking at the 41% of people are undecided. Andre Dickens got about 16.8% of that, and Felicia Moore got about 16.2% of that, just looking at how much they improved from that poll, right, uh, from the poll to the, to Election Day. So the idea, so both did really well. Uh, I think the narrative initially was that Andre Dickens knocked out Kasim Reed, and he has all the momentum. The reality is that the undecided bro- voters uh, broke pretty evenly between the two of them. And I think that looking at the, the, the pollster's note and the survey yesterday, that they they feel like this is still a tie. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that that last week or two, um, again, people, the voters, the undecided voters broke evenly and voters are still seem to be pretty evenly split between them. Now, to your question uh, for Andre, when you look at the demographics of the, November 2nd election, 47 percent or 48.7 percent white, 37 percent black, 10 mm-hmm. percent unknown, which means that you probably had the majority of voters is actually white for the first time in 40 something years in Atlanta.
2: You mentioned you brought up race. so I, I want to talk about not just race, but also in terms of of region, because in in runoffs and and correct me if I'm wrong and I don't mind being corrected. But in runoffs in Atlanta, mayoral race and we, we know what happened with with. Uh, Mayor Bottoms and Mary Norwood here. Typically, you may see more voter turnout in certain regions of the city than you. Mm-hmm. It does that. Do you still? Is that still a factor? Do we? Because we we always talk about Buckhead and Old Fourth Ward and and Midtown and, and Ponce Highland and Virginia Highlands. Sound like I'm a DJ calling out people's neighborhoods here. Um, <laughs> and then there's always a lower turnout in Southwest Atlanta and a little bit on the West Side. Is that going to be a factor? you think, as well?
1: Well, turnout is is really going to be the key in, in this election, right? So if you have um, you know, Andre Dickens and Kasim Reed collectively in Southwest Atlanta got about 70% of the vote, which means that Felicia Moore could not have received more than 30% of the vote. Mm-hmm. And so for the Andre Dickens team, their goal is to try to pick up all of the Kasim Reed voters. And if they're successful in doing that, then, yeah, um, which they would need to do, given how strong. Strongly, Felicia Moore performed in Buckhead and on the east side of the city. So when you look at that, turnout is going to determine everything. So through yesterday, Mm -hmm. with the early votes that have been cast so far, the Buckhead City Council districts make up about 26% of the vote. Mm -hmm. That's districts we call districts seven and eight. So that's uh, for your listeners. That's Piedmont Road all the way over to Northside Drive. Sure. Um, So going past the Governor's Mansion, and the traditional black uh, stronghold districts of districts 10 and 11, that's Cascade, that's, um, you know, that's Martin, uh, Martin Luther King, junior drive over to the Southwest Corridor. That mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. now that makes up about 21% of the vote. So Buckhead is outpacing by about 5%. Uh, Felicia Moore's district, district nine, which that she served, or that she represented before becoming president mm-hmm. um, is coming mm-hmm. in pretty strong. But if you just assign values to, the, to these districts, then... It looks to me, I know what the poll said, it looks to me that Felicia Moore is probably a few hundred votes ahead, three, four or five hundred votes just based on where the votes are coming from right now. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, that could very well change. And again, you just
2: proved my point about the polling.
1: I didn't, yes, you, uh, yes, did not, because every poll has, a, has certain assumptions, that and so true. you look at what's happening. But let me let me tell you something about polling.
2: I'm going to get real for a second, and yeah. I'm not a demographer. You all have your little <laughs> polls and calling people and all that. I'm in the streets, and I listen to what the streets say, so okay, that's all I'm saying. So what are
1: the streets I, saying to you? I'm going to keep it to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what the street polls are saying, so... Well no, the street no, well I the think street think polls that, um, are
2: saying it's it's not in aligned there is a leader but it's not that margin that they have I'm just no, I go by I, the street I polls it,
1: I don't think that either campaign feels that they are well maybe the Andre Dickens campaign does they put out a poll on Friday that showed them 14 points ahead uh which You told me and I, I we got to go
2: but you told me in one of our conversations a while back that candidates in and their, in their internal polling we should take with a grain of salt i'm just telling you what you said to me absolutely
1: all a right. very small fred, grain of salt all
2: right atlanta-based political strategist fred hicks always my friend i enjoy the conversation thank you for the information thank you we'll
1: be on next week right after the election come on back we'll be here
2: all right that's it for this edition of closer look a reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other send me an email rose at wabe and if you missed any of today's show it's always online at WABE.org slash CloserLook. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.